Hi, everyone. Um, good morning. It's, we're glad that you're here. My name is Danny. I'll introduce myself before I go into housekeeping stuff. Um, like Helen just mentioned, um, yeah, we are going through this process. And the way that you're going to start seeing our PSE updates is going to alternate every month from in-service, uh, like we just did, and afterwards in-service. So uh, they'll still continue to be every month we're updating you guys on where we're at, uh, where, if, how many candidates we have, and at what point of the stage they're at and so on and so forth. And like she said, if you have any questions, speak to anybody on staff or any of the members of the leadership team. And if you're confused at who they are and even who the PSC members are, you can always go to the welcoming table and they'll give you an email address or point you to the right people to talk to. Um, but this whole procedure is open book. Um, well, to, to a certain extent that a lot of it is just, you know, we want to, we're doing these updates to share with you guys. Like, we're not hiding behind what's going on in terms of the life of the church and where Cornerstone is headed. Um, so please feel free to come and email us and speak to us, and uh, we'll do the best to let you know and what's going on. Um, I also wanted to give a quick thank you to everyone who uh, set up, broke down, decorated, uh, gave performances, and baked, and provided things and served for the, ba- uh, not for the bake sale, for the coffee house we had on Friday. So can we just give a thank you for all those volunteers who uh, participated? Um, the baked goods were amazing, which is why we ended up raising $900. You're, you guys should open up a business. Um, they were delicious, and uh, the, all the performances were really great. Um, if you were here with us on Friday, the staff, we did a surprise act at the end of the night. And really, um, the idea behind that was just wanting to, yeah, just say that we love the church. We love you guys. And it's just been a great uh, season for us in this past year with the three of us leading together. And um, I guess it was like our miniature Christmas gift to you guys. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. So um, that's all the housekeeping stuff. Uh, let's go into the message today, and let me, let me actually pray for us real quickly. Lord Jesus, it is our hope that whether through this process of our church, um, this season that we're going through, whether it be through our Sunday services, our coffee houses, side events, small groups, relationships, uh, Facebook posts to setting up and cleaning up, whatever we do, God, whatever we do as cornerstone, as individuals, as sons and daughters of yours, would it just be a big uh, message of love to you, our God and our Savior. Um, This Christmas season is all about you and about your son, and uh, we pray that we just outwardly and, and loudly proclaim the love that we have for Jesus and the love that he has for his people. Um, So Lord, the same for this sermon and for this message, for these songs that we sing, for these prayers, for this service, would it be pleasing to you, and would you just make our hearts right with you, Lord, that we come before you in humility, and especially in in adoration and love. So thank you for this time that we can share, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so when I say, or when you hear the word Christmas, what is the first thought that comes to your mind? Share that with your neighbor and be honest. What is the first thing that you came to your mind when I said Christmas? Go ahead. Share with your neighbor. There's laughter, so I'm assuming you guys are saying pagan things. All right, all right. Reset, reset. Come back in. When I, when I think about the word Christmas, I'll be honest, the first thing, like, if it was just like imagery and if I was in a psychology test, the first image that would come to mind is a Christmas tree. 
um, I did this test to myself. I was looking in the mirror like Christmas, I'm like uh, tree, you know, like so. I think about like a decorated tree with the you know the ornaments on it and the star at the top. And I'm sure many of you guys thought something similar. Or we have these images of candy canes and presents and Santa, red and green. Uh, those of you who really want a girlfriend or boyfriend, think of mistletoe and who you're going to kiss under the mistletoe. Um, and every year, when this Christmas time or this Advent comes or, time comes around, and we have these Advent candles representing each week, and the center candle being for Christmas, um, churches all around the world and even beyond the church, we're always asking ourselves, like, "Oh, we need to get back to the true meaning of Christmas." We need to remind each other and make sure that we're not sucked away by the world and by by the secular ideas of the holidays. And I don't know what it's like for you, but to me, it's completely, it's not cliche at all. Every winter that comes around, I I love the reminder and the challenge to, hey, uh, let's reflect, refocus, and just remember all these re's about what Christmas is truly about. And just to begin today, I'm going to put up a clip that's very, very famous and many of you may have seen before. It's only one minute long. It's super short. Um, but what I believe is to literally, and, and I'm using literally, literally, not the way that we use it nowadays. So we say literally before everything, but I literally mean literally. It, it's the best way to explain what Christmas is truly about. Okay? So let's watch this. It's going to be one minute. <laughs> I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Isn't that awesome? Uh, Linus is so boss. Like, he's just like, let me tell you, he walks off on stage and he comes back, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Like, that, that's like so sufficient, right? I could just close right there. Um, what, what, what Linus is, is talking about, uh, or what he's reciting, he memorized, maybe he went through Awana, um, is from Luke chapter 2. He's just reciting scripture. And, you know, this is the account uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, of the angels greeting the shepherds and what happens. And at the end of these verses, or this passage that Linus is reading from, Luke writes, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, he's 100% right, and it literally is the best way to explain the true meaning of Christmas. 
that it's about the glory of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we think about what the true meaning of Christmas is, it's not, you know, yeah, we've heard it before, the cliche, right? It's not about shopping and, and commercialism and gifts and, and presents and red and green and all the flashy things. And it's not also a fusion of the two. It's like partially about gifts but partially about Jesus. It's just purely about the glory of God, that the people of God celebrating the risen or the newborn king along with the multitudes of the heavenly hosts praising Jesus our king. What we're doing this this series in Advent is going through different characteristics of Jesus. And today we're going to be talking about the humble king, as you can see in this line under here, and four different things every Sunday. And the reason why we're doing this is precisely because of the true meaning of Christmas. It's about Jesus. And what we wanted to do as a staff is really be preaching about him, because this is all about him, and not only during this Christmas season, but our entire lives, the existence of the church is about him. And so as we point to him, speak about him, um, preach about him, teach and read and learn to be more like Christ, um, our hope during this Advent series is that we'd be embodying more of that Christ-likeness in us. Um, so today we're going to be talking about Jesus, the humble king, and to read a little bit about that from the Word, we're going to be opening up to John 13. So I want to encourage you guys to open up your Bibles, or you can read along with me on the screen. We're going to be reading from John 13, uh, from verse 1. In John 13, starting from verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So other than the moment when Jesus gives up his life on the cross, um, personally, I feel like this is the most powerful display of his character, in particular, his humility, than we have, period, in the Bible. Other than the cross, I think this is where that happens. Now, what we have, and just to recap in the scene, Jesus and his disciples gather for dinner. He takes off his outer robe, puts a linen cloth around his waist, and starts washing his disciples' feet. 
Then, you know, Peter, he has this interaction with Peter and this conversation about how Peter's really offended, he won't let it happen. And he explains how, uh, you know, there is one person who there who is not clean, but how ultimately it's about if you've accepted Christ, if he's working you, then you are clean, it's just your feet that need to be cleansed. And then he says, what I've just done, do this to others. Now, I think what we need to do in order to understand this passage, just like so many others in scriptures, is to understand the culture at the time. So if we go back 2,000 years into the days of Jesus, we know that at least historians teach us and archaeologists have found um, a lot of details about the way that they lived as a society. Now, people wore sandals, and it was a very uh, desert-like area, lots of dusty roads, and their feet would naturally just get caked with dust and be very dirty. So, homeowners would have basins of water at the entrance of their homes for guests to have their feet washed. Um, because to have dirty feet at a meal time and to track them into the house was considered to be very rude, it was, it was taboo, it was like a social no-no, and so they would have basins of water to wash your feet. Now this was even reflected in the way that they had meals. The way that they would set up meal times and the way that Jesus was eating with his disciples probably in this scene was they would have tables of food in the center, couches surrounding that table, and then the way that they would, or cushions, and then the way that they would sit is on their sides, facing the table and the food with their feet pointing away to even more so emphasize our feet should not be near things that need to be clean. So if you can imagine him sitting around the table, like that picture of the Last Supper is probably inaccurate and they're all standing. But like, I don't know, if you can imagine me sitting on a cushion here, like, like a mermaid with my feet out, is, is what the idea is, that we're keeping our feet away from the table. Now the job of foot washing was reserved for slaves. They would be the ones who did not have an outer cloak and they would have a linen towel around their waist. So John, in this narrative, he could have easily said, and Jesus and his disciples got together, and Jesus stood up and started washing his disciples' feet and continued the story. But he's sure to include the details that Jesus takes out of the outer robe, and he wraps a linen towel around his waist. And even right there, immediately for the disciples, they're like, whoa, what is he doing? And the original reader starting to get a little bit emotional and, and offended even, at, and enticed at what's happening, because the linen towel around your waist was almost like a uniform for a slave. They were the ones to wash people's feet. Taking this a little step further to get what would seem even more shocking is that slavery, there were actually two different types of slaves during Jesus' time. There were Jewish slaves, their own people who were enslaved, and there were also Gentile slaves, non-Jews. The thing about foot washing, the slave, if you imagine the linen cloth slave who would be reserved there to wash the feet of guests, Jewish people, the Jews, they thought it was too demeaning of a task, too offensive to ask Jewish slaves to do this work. So it was actually reserved for Gentile slaves, which just was just a reflection of the sin, the racism, the issues that were going on in battling cultures. So when we say, oh, Jesus knelt down like a slave um, and he served his disciples, well, it's actually even a step further. He wasn't just like any Jewish slave that would do the tasks of their masters, but he, was even, he even lowered himself to a further extent, demeaning himself to the point of a slave in which uh, was considered to be the lowliest of the low. A step further... I read some, some, some commentary from some historians on the, in the Jewish culture of the time. And these Gentile slaves, uh, one, one commentator asked the question, and I'll ask you guys, have you ever had a fan in your room? 
or in just in any inanimate object, right? You're, it's in the summer, you just turn on a fan. And he's like, this is what Gentile slaves were like. A piece of plastic that didn't matter. And why does he bring that up? Well, the reason is because how many of us would be embarrassed to be naked in front of our fan or our closet or our carpet? How many of us would be embarrassed to do something shameful in front of that? What would happen is if a Gentile slave was present, they were no different or no better than a piece of plastic or wood or cloth. They weren't even human. They were so disrespected, hated, and demeaned that what would happen is that they would commit crimes in front of them shamelessly because if a piece of carpet isn't going to hold testimony in the court of law or a fan, they would have sex and and have their sexual relations because what is there to be shameful about? And they would just do anything and everything in front of these slaves because it didn't matter. Now, which also led many slave owners to be horrible and abuse them, to beat them physically, to rape them. And it was okay. It wasn't considered illegal because, again, you weren't doing anything wrong to a human. One step further, what I came to in a little bit of research was that sometimes if these slaves were raped and they bore children, their children were considered to be just as worthless and useless. Because if inanimate objects bear inanimate objects, in the end, they're all the same, worth nothing. Now, when we think about it this way, I think the act of foot washing, it takes on a whole new meaning and lens. It's not simply Jesus just being like, oh, I'm so humble and I'm going to do something for you. But the reason why this this, this dinner is actually very tense and emotional, because as soon as he puts on this cloth and starts washing his disciples' feet, something beyond what they would ever be ready for or expect is happening. When we are reading scriptures and some in the narrative and some emotional thing happens, we should pay attention, right? And so Peter here, he, he rebukes his master, his rabbi, which is something that would never, ever happen. Look at what happens. So Peter flips out. He freaks out, says, no, you're not going to do that. And first, that's one thing. Why is Peter so emotional? Why is he so offended? To the point in which he would do, like, the cardinal sin. You don't speak back to your rabbi at this time. And let's look at what he says. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. This last verse, uh, or this last sentence in verse 8, when Peter says, You shall never wash my feet, is such a crazy sentence in the Greek. I I think the the English translators had to put it this way, and never would be the most appropriate word. But um, I'm just going to read it from a, uh, a Greek grammar book that I read, in which the scholar writes that this sentence that Peter says is a double negative subjunctive followed by an emphatic prepositional phrase around a heightened personal pronoun. It's a double negative surrounded by an emphatic prepositional phrase around a heightened personal pronoun. So if this was like, if, if this wasn't like the ESV, right? If it was like a text or like a blog, you would put like, you are never, ever, 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 like caps lock, exclamation point, like click all the things on the keyboard, like emoticon, like, ah, like emoji, like you're never, ever going to do this. Like, it's not him being polite. He's straight up rebuking Jesus, being like, you are crazy. You will never do that. So I'm trying to get us to convey and get the feel and to dive into the word in this sense. And what's going on here is crazy. Jesus washing the feet, this is why I believe it to be the second only to him sacrificing and giving up his life on the cross. 
And what's going on here is that Jesus is wa- uh, washing the feet of his disciples. He's pointing to his atoning sacrifice on the cross. It's at this moment with his disciples where he's able to say, look and get a small taste of the extent, the loving humility that I have and how far I'm willing to go for you. It's at this place when they're eating dinner, when they're having this intimate dinner where Jesus does one of the most radical things he does in his ministry to show, I'm going to do something and even now you're offended by this, but there will be something even greater. There will be a length and a a leap that I go even beyond this to show you how to humbly love one another and to what extent I would love all of you. So what does this act that Jesus does of foot washing mean for us today? You know, many of us have heard sermons on this passage, I'm sure. Um, And, you know, it's not uncommon to hear the simple message that Jesus washed our feet, and at the end of the verses he says, wash others' feet. And so we do that. And we talk about being humble to one another. And and that's that. But there's actually a couple uh, details about this passage that I think oftentimes go noticed that are really important. So let's read from verse 12 together. It says, When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. So he's done. He said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, what's really interesting, what I want to highlight here in the yellow, is how it's here, and I'll show in another part of this passage, where Jesus always, he, he, he starts first with who he is. Right? So he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. So he stamps it in. I am your teacher and Lord. And then, for the sake of redundancy, and even to, to emphasize further, he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher. He doesn't need to keep repeating who he is, but he does. And John makes sure to write down that Jesus is talking. He first emphasizes, I am Lord. I am king. I am teacher. Even before this passage, in the beginning, before he washes his disciples' feet in verse 3, John writes, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he comes from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, why is this important? If the whole meaning point of the passage is simply that he went and did something crazy, then why do you have to talk about his thought process? But here, John points out that Jesus, basically, in verse 3, is saying he knows he's, the, he's God. He knows he's king. He knows he is all-glorious, majestic, and powerful. And there's this huge, divine, like, beautiful jump from knowing that you are the Almighty, and immediately after that thought, he rises from supper and he washes his feet. Immediately, he starts from his glory and from his righteousness, from who he is, and his first response is this extravagant, grand humility. There have been countless instances in my life, and I'm sure you guys may may be able to relate, in which I go through the same exact process when I'm dealing with other people. I start with who I am, what I deserve, and then I move on to the person and to the action of how I treat and respond to this person. I do the same exact thought process as Jesus, except I end up in a radically different conclusion. Let me give you an example. I've experienced a lot, maybe you guys too, maybe you have that friend who's always asking for favors, right? And so for me, I, have the, I, I can think of some people who I've given them a gazillion rides, I am their taxi, or taxis get paid, and so I'm whatever that is, I'm just their driver, 
I've given them, uh, you know, I've helped them move and lift up the heavy boxes all the time. I've given them rides to the airport when they are traveling and picked them up. I've uh, lent them money when they've had none. I've planned their birthday parties and did like all these things. And then the one time I ask them a favor, that oh, sorry, I'm too busy. And they keep ducking out of it, right? They, they do everything they can to avoid your phone calls or your emails and they're just like escaping. And what do I do in that situation? I start with me. I have done so much for them. I have sacrificed and never grumbled. I've gone above and beyond using so much money and time and energy into serving them. I have been such a loyal and good friend. And then I move to the other. But they can't even do one stupid favor for me that I ask. And then that just trails into bitterness, anger, judgment. And I start tearing and breaking the relationship because what I start with is my pride, my glory, who I am. Maybe there's the mean person that you work with or is in your dorm or your roommate who you're doing all the cleaning up and all the good things and they never do anything and participate. Or the jerk who I always stick up for them, everyone in the office hates them, they're mean, but I bite my tongue. I'm not going to do that anymore. Screw that. Like, they're just, like, jerks. We, we, we start with ourselves, and then we move to the other, and how we treat the other. I think it's important for John to keep continuously picking on the fact that Jesus starts with himself. He knows who he is. He is God Almighty. He is the judge. He is the perfect, the sinless, the holy one who deserves all praise and can command it with a snap of his fingers. And immediately after recognizing that he is perfect and all-powerful, instead of reacting in the way that I would, he does the opposite by lowering himself completely and washing the feet of his disciples. Think about who, what, what happens in a couple hours. Two or, I don't know exactly, a couple or so hours right after this dinner, Where are they? Where are these people that he just served? They're gone. He's getting arrested. He's being brought into court. He's in front of the the chief priests. He's getting beaten and flogged. He's being crucified and they're all gone. All these disciples, they're the ones who, who in crunch time did not stand by his back. And he knew that. Christ knows everything. He knows the future. These are the disciples that ran away. Where was John, right? Peter is the one that denies him three times. Judas is still in here. He's the betrayer. And John makes sure to identify in the scripture that we just read twice that Judas was was present there. And so I think about the humility of Christ to be able to find the lowest, lowest possible point. That's one thing. And then on top of that, to know who he is in his own glory and thinking about this picture of getting going around the circle, washing John's feet and thinking, looking him in the eye and knowing you are not going to be next to me. You are going to quiver and cower in fear and you will not support me. But I love and I serve you. Moving on to Peter. You say that you're going to follow me to the end, but you're full of crap. You're going to deny me three times even though you say that I'm your best friend. And then he moves to Judas. You are going to go down in history as the betrayer. I am the glorious God, and yet I wash your feet. I can't even begin to imagine what that moment was like between Judas and Jesus as he's doing something so culturally 
radical, offensive even, in lowering himself to the status of a slave that would legally be beaten, raped, mistreated, abused. So he lowers himself to that extent and then looks his betrayer in the eye, knowing that he is God, and yet he treats him with loving humility and nothing else. And so it's at this point when there is no boundaries, friends, where Jesus says this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. You know, um, I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. And, and I've done this too, and I'm not bashing, but I know in a lot of retreat services, sometimes weddings, like there's foot washing services. And the one thing that I think about them is like, I wonder if they really know what's going on, if we really knew. Because foot washing really is showing to no boundaries, no limits, that you're completely lowering yourself without, without any uh, reserve. That the people who could literally do the worst things in the world to you, like betray you and have you die you'd still serve them. I wonder if all those divorce rates and the 50% in this country or in this world and for all those Christian services where they wash each other's feet in this in the ceremony, in their weddings, if they were to know truly that you could be the worst spouse in history and this foot washing act is me being like Christ Jesus, going to the fullest extent of showing humble love. And the awesome thing and the beautiful thing about this passage, friends, is that this is just a snippet. This is just a pointing towards, a preview of what Jesus ends up doing on the cross. When we start breaking a relationship and when our witness of loving the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and loving our neighbors on ourselves starts to break down, a lot of it, it's because we start with ourselves because we glorify ourselves, raise ourselves up, and then treat the other person based upon that. But here, when Jesus says, do unto others as I have done to you, he's telling us, humble yourselves before one another, get to the lowest possible point that you could imagine, and still love with a joyful heart. What it took Jesus to love Judas, to wash his feet at that moment, I believe that all of us, as the Holy Spirit ministers to us and sanctifies us, that we'll get closer and closer and closer to that point where we're able to be people who are more extravagantly loving, where people who are more offensively loving even, what what the world may seem, radically loving, radically humble. And I think at this Christmas time, there is so much of this whole secularism and commercialism and all the isms going around in this world where people don't really know what Christmas is about. And my prayer through this series and today, through this moment even, through this text, through the scripture, through Jesus' actions of humility, that as the word goes out and is heard and digested and, and written on our hearts, that we, the church, would be the loud, extravagant, big witnesses for Christ during this Christmas season, not by how many things we can do and, uh, and like make noise and events and, and decorations or telling people that, you know, that's wrong but by the ways that we start getting to the floor on our knees and start serving one another. By the way that we start embracing a Christ-like humility in the love that we have. As we 
seek to grow in our faith, the number one goal is to be more like Jesus, right? And the number way to, one way to keep going and trying to become like Jesus is, the, is to keep looking at what he did. Mirroring it, loving it, accepting it into our hearts and allowing it to breed new life and transformation in us. The best way that we can glorify Jesus is to obey him. And I love this command. After Jesus does this crazy, crazy thing, he says, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So my prayer for all of us today and our hope in this church and, and, and for Cornerstone and for all the churches, for, for, for the capital C church, is that the world will be able to know that we are his disciples by the way that we love and by the way that we embrace the Christ-like humility to one another and to the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for... It almost seems like our words are... They, they oftentimes fail, fall so short of being able to adequately thank, thank you for what you've done for us. Um, but Father, I pray that we would come to a deeper and more clear realization of what you've done and at what cost so that we would hold on tighter, that we would believe with more faith, and especially that it would create more transformation and that we can be more powerful witnesses to this world. God, in order for us to bear the gospel in this world, we need to be believers and champions of the gospel. And my prayer, Lord, is that through Jesus' humility and his sacrificial love, through his command that we should follow his example that he set, that you would be making us more like your son. That as you created us in your image, that we would bear the image of Jesus Christ in this world. That the church would not be seen as, I don't know, what all the offensive things that this world may believe it to be, but that our humble love, our sacrificial love, would just trump all of that. And that this non-believing world will see that you truly are God by the ways that the church lowers themselves and serves. Heavenly Father, I pray for Cornerstone and for all of my friends here that they would realize more and more daily the loving acts of Jesus Christ for them. That they would understand what cost you went, what, what extent you went to to welcome them into your family and to call them son and daughter. I pray that no matter what they're going through, whether it be on the highest highs or in the lowest lows or somewhere in between, whether they're confused or searching or figuring things out or whether they're struggling or having hardships, meet them where they're at, Lord. And won't you just amaze and enthrall them with who you are, with the person of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that this Christmas would not be a fusion of the world mixed with Jesus, but that it would be about you and you alone. We pray that our worship would be pleasing to your ears and soothing, Lord God, to your heart, glorifying to you and from a purity in our hearts, O Lord. Father, we know that And we pray that we would be the ones to work for that glory. To give up all of our lives like that song said. We sang earlier today, we give up our lives for all that you've done. 
We pray that that would be our song, our banner. Lord Jesus, would you bring more peace in this world because Christians start being humble and loving? Would you destroy any animosity and hatred and fighting with one another? Would you destroy judgment and pointing of fingers and, and, and harboring of bitterness? Would you help us to right wrongs by forgiveness? Keep us from hurting each other, from wronging each other, from being selfish and only thinking of ourselves first. And I pray, Lord, that we would go to any extent with no boundary like you did to show humility to each other. God, this season we've been praying to become a healthy family. That we've been asking that you would make Cornerstone closer, tighter, more loving. And God, we pray that we would start through this command as you have showed your humility and your command for us to follow suit. That we would lower ourselves and raise each other up. Father, we love you and thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you've gone to the great extent to love sinners like us. That we were once enemies, but now we are called son and daughter. And we praise you. We love you. We worship and glorify you, Lord. And with thanks and praise, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.